Vineyard Westside welcomes everyone. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. Come as you are, because we believe that love wins, period. God is omni-everything. If you've heard anything about the, the attributes of God, or maybe you've just heard the word before, uh, some of these words that God is omnipresent, that he is he's all-knowing, that he knows uh, your highlight reel and your epic fail, you know, compilation. He knows uh, what is true about you. He knows what you believe about yourself that's false. He believes, or he knows uh, the gray areas of your life. He knows uh, the places where you've let yourself down or let him down. He knows the places where you've made him proud. He knows all of it. That God is also omnipresent, that he's always present. He has this ability that no one else has to be present anywhere and everywhere at the same time. That some of you might say, well, I don't want to, like, you don't pray because you don't want to bother God. Because, like, well, my stuff isn't that big of a deal. Other people are, you know, there's people out there that are stuck. I hear this crap all the time. <laughs> Other people are stuck. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't mean you have to live your life as a doormat because somebody else is hungry. And so just as uh, fish inhabit the sea, the entire universe, all of us, all of the things that we know, trees, grass, sky, our houses, our apartments, our cars, every single thing, just as fish are in the ocean, the entire universe inhabits God. God doesn't live in the universe. He doesn't live in the universe uh, because he didn't have to build a house for himself. You and me and the duck-billed platypus, which has to be some kind of, I mean, come on. That's like, if you've ever built anything like from Ikea, you get an extra part sometimes for certain ones, and you have like 13 extra parts, that's where the duck-billed platypus came from, those extra pieces. But you and me and a duck-billed platypus and the Earth, the Milky Way galaxy, all of life, all of existence that we know of, it's contained by God. And the thing, one of the things we can't wrap our head around is that it's just too big. Um, nature, the world that we know, that we can see, it's been described as a very thin screen that contains our omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. That this, it's like a screened-in tent. Or maybe it's like a house uh, with just a screen door where the regular doors open it's a screen door and what God is like is if that house filled with smoke completely and totally and it's hard to contain but that screen door is just letting it trickle out just a little bit uh, God is constantly breaking out more and more into the world his glory bursts everywhere you can't contain it you can't keep it in that room we're going to read Psalm 139 today, the entire chapter. It's not too long. This chapter gives us three different chunks about who God is. 
The first section is about his omniscience, that he's all-knowing. The second part is his omnipresence, that he's always present wherever you are. And the third part is that he's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. Psalm 139, it says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my laying down. You're familiar with all my ways. This is David saying again and again, God, you know everything about me, don't you? You, There's not one thing about me that, I don't know the things about me that you know about me. Verse 4, he says, before a word's on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Verse 7 is when we step into the omnipresence territory of God. David says, where can I go from your spirit? I've tried to run. David was like a lot of us where sometimes he was in love with God. Other times he was running away from God. And so he was up and down and up and down. But he says, you know what I've learned after all these years? Where can I go from your spirit? Even when I'm running from you, you just won't leave me alone. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night all around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. In this verse 13, we step into the attribute of God, omnipotence, being all-powerful, that you are more powerful than any other thing in all of creation, all of existence. It says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, when I was made in the secret place. What the heck is that? It's David recognizing that there's a supernatural element that takes place whenever someone is created. Whenever two people come together in a certain way that it is a spiritual activity and that God is a part of that thing happening and that from the very beginning, that you just aren't an accident and you're not the result of primordial ooze and you're not the result of any bang that did or didn't take place. <laughs> that you were created by him that he was overseeing the process. He says, God, I thank you because, I mean, I imagine that David had abs. I'm serious. I think that he was a specimen. And he says it in lots of different places. He says, I praise you, Lord, that I am 
fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, look at the... Verse 16, he says, your eyes, they saw my unformed body. All the days were ordained for me that were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. This is where it kind of turns another page where he's like, all right, God, I've been telling you how great you are. Now, if you could wipe out all my enemies, that'd be great. How vast is the sum of them were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. They say mean stuff about you. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. It means that he also expends no energy that has to be replenished. He's not the same as us. He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't need to sleep or drink. Uh, he doesn't get out of breath. He's all-powerful. He's infinite, and he possesses infinite power. And so, it, I mean, it's more than Superman. He allows his, his creations, us, and everything else that he's made, he allows us to have some power, but the power that we have, uh, it, it for one thing, it doesn't compare to his, but also it doesn't diminish his power. So whatever he gives away, it doesn't take away from him. When the Bible says that God rested on the seventh day after he created everything, it wasn't because he needed to take a nap, that he was worn out, because he's all-powerful, and so to him it was no work at all. The seventh day, taking it off, it was, it was to be an example for us because we're less powerful and we need rest. Not because God was tired. 1 Kings chapter 18. It says, Then you call on the name of the Lord your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. This is a, kind of an argument that's going on between two groups of people uh, in Kings 18. And they are doing the thing with, my dad can beat up your dad right now for real. And uh, well, why don't you call upon your God and I'll call upon mine. And why don't we, why don't we just see what happens? Then all the people said, what you say is good. They're like, yeah, God fight. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Baal is the bad guy in this story. Um, Baal is a, 
a little g-god, a false god, an idol that a group of people started worshiping. They made up some rules and stories around Baal and began to worship him, and it started to spread really, really big. And it was, uh, it was just deception. Anyway, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of the Lord your God. And when it's written here, it's little g-god every time. I imagine when they're saying it, they're doing air quotes. <laughs> he says, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. And so they took the bull given to them and prepared it. But when they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon... Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. And so they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears. You know, you're down bad when you're flashing, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, from whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. I forgot to look what that word means. Seahs, I'm imagining there's something. He arranged the wood, he cut the bull into pieces. Well, I think I have too many words happening here. I'm supposed to stop. Oh, we'll finish this, this part. He arranged the wood, he cut the bull into pieces, and he laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars, fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. It burned up the wood, the stones, and the soil, and it also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Have any of you had that moment where uh, it clicked and you went, Oh my gosh, it's for real. Where you'd been wondering forever, Still, I don't know, and maybe you were a Christian for years. But still, there was that, that hint of doubt or whatever, and you're just not sure. And you have something happen, and you go, wait a second. 
some kind of a, a God interference. Do any of you know about the Minnesota grasshopper problem? It was a pretty famous problem. Minnesota grasshopper problem uh, happened in 1876. I guess it was a while ago. Um, but it destroyed almost all the crops in Minnesota that year, which was the number one. That was how you ate and made money and everything. Uh, so it was a really, really, really big deal. You couldn't get, you couldn't just call the next couple states over and get a shipment of something. If these local farms were eaten, you were in major, major trouble. And so grasshoppers showed up, which were not known to Minnesota until that year. And in the spring, these farmers were worried about it. They thought that this could possibly be the dreadful plague that they had read about, the locusts. And so what they did is they were coming up with plans on how to possibly get rid of these grasshoppers, how to take care of them. Uh, it actually was so serious that the governor of the state proclaimed April 26th as the day of prayer and fasting because the town got together to see what they were going to do. They couldn't come up with anything, and they said, then we need to pray. We need to pray. And so it was declared a day of prayer and fasting, and he urged every man, woman, and child to ask God to prevent this terrible scourge. And on that April day, all the schools were closed, all the shops, the stores, the offices were closed, and there was a scheduled time, a reverent, quiet hush that fell over the entire state where they just prayed that, God, you would intervene, you would bring a creative miracle, you would rid us of these grasshoppers. We're, we're going to starve. We're going to have a serious problem. God, please move. We don't know how to fix this. We need you to do something that only you can do. And the next day they woke up and things were looking um, different. The temperature ended up soaring that day uh, from what they were used to in the regular summertime. Uh, it was super unusual for April. Minnesota people um, were <laughs> burning up. And it was three days of unusual heat that they had into the 90s. Over that three days, they saw larvae hatched and crawling up out of the ground, and uh, it seemed like there was going to be destruction happening very soon. But on the fourth day of 90-degree temperature, the temperature dropped that evening all the way down into the 20s or 30s to where it could snow. And so it went from 90 degrees to snowing within one day. And they woke up the next morning and every single one of them was dead. There was a carpet of dead grasshoppers across the state. Every single one of them didn't last. The heat followed by the snow. And it went down in history and it's still known as the day that God answered the prayers of the people of Minnesota. Uh, Henry Blackaby is an author who wrote a book called Experiencing God, and he writes this. He said, we should attempt things so great that they're doomed to failure unless God intervenes. 
that they're doomed to fail unless God intervenes? Are you praying prayers that, like, are you praying prayers that really you could take care of if, you, if you're really honest? Like, God, would you just help me to uh, pay my bills on time? Well, you probably could do that. This is saying to pray for things that aren't even possible with you, that you on your best behavior, you, um, if you got your act together, you as smart as you are, you can't do this at all. You need him to be able to pull this off. Are you praying things about that? Our God is omniscient. He's omniscient. That means he's all-knowing, that he possesses perfect knowledge, and he has no need to learn. It's impossible to hide anything from God. God has seen you on the toilet. (laughs) Hebrews 4 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so this this all-knowing, this omniscient, It also includes every thought and the things that we would never tell anybody that we think and the things that we've done in secret and the things that that he he knows about all of it. Crazy thing is he still loves you. There's a story about a king who needed a faithful servant to work for him, and he had, he had two candidates who he needed to choose between. And he took both of them and gave them fixed wages, and he told them that the test was that uh, a job, the same job would be given to them. It was to fill a basket up with water from a nearby well, like a wicker basket. And he said that he would come back in the evening and he would inspect their work. After dumping one or two or three of the buckets of the water out onto the ground that they pulled up out of the, and there was hardly any water, it it took forever because it kept leaking out. (laughs) One of the men said, why on earth are we doing this? As soon as we pour the water in, it starts to run out the sides. The other answered, yeah, but we have our wages, don't we? He's paying us to do this job, and so I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. The other man says, it's, it's completely useless. Why are, it's a waste. This is the dumbest job ever. The use is that it's the master's business, and it's not ours. He is a wise king, and he must have his own purpose that we don't understand. I'm not going to do such fool's work, one of them says. He throws down his bucket and he goes away. The other man continued until he had drained the well completely. Looking down into it, he saw something shining at the bottom. It was a diamond ring. Now I see the use of pouring water into the basket, he exclaimed. If the bucket that I had brought up the ring before was the well was dry, it would have been filtered out in the basket. The king was looking for his diamond. Our work wasn't useless. The king found his most faithful servant. And so the story is about just the, so many of us that we say, why on earth, God, why did you let that happen? God, why did you make that happen? God, why did you, don't you understand that I needed these four things to line up perfectly? God is 
up to other things. He's up to other things. Sometimes he's trying to fish a diamond ring out of a well when you think you're going through a useless task. Our God is omnipresent. He's omnipresent. It means that he's always everywhere. He's always right there ready to be with you. He's always with those people uh, who are dealing with a tsunami or an earthquake. He's also waiting in that place. He's everywhere, in complete presence all the time. He has no boundaries whatsoever. He operates outside of space and time. The truth is taught throughout the Bible, uh, and the phrase that, that God seems to use and that is written time and again in Scripture is, I'm with you always. I am with you always. It's repeated 44 times. It's in the Old Testament 22 times, the New Testament 22 times. I am with you always. David said, where can I go from your spirit? Nowhere, because he already recognized he already recognized, I'm with you always. These were Jesus' words, too, as he assured us just after giving us the challenge and his disciples the challenge to take his message into the world. He gives us this truth for any of us who follow Jesus. He says, I'm with you always. Jonah uh, was a prophet in the Old Testament who was commissioned by God to go to Nineveh. Um, he's a prophet who, at the time, um, his, his words would carry a huge amount of weight, um, and people would kind of test them to say, okay, does this person really hear from God or not? Um, Jonah has been proven to be a prophet, that he is reliable, uh, but he's a jerk. Um, a lot of prophets are. Um, and so he is commissioned by God to go to a place called Nineveh. That is, it sounds like Las Vegas on crack. Like, just the people are wild. And it's known as a, just kind of a, a dark plague on the, on the map. Godlessness, lawlessness. Jonah is commissioned by God to go to Nineveh to give them the message the message from God is, I see the evil that you're doing. You need to turn from it. I see the evil that you're doing. In case you were wondering, yes, there is a God. Yes, this is him. Yes, I know what you've been up to. I know everything. You need to turn from it. This is a warning. This is a warning. <coughs> Jonah hates the people of Nineveh, though. And so he's asked by God, to go and deliver this message, but he hates the people of Nineveh. He's spoken about wanting them to die. And so he runs away from God instead. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He's a prophet, but he's, he's dumb. <laughs> he doesn't recognize that God is all-knowing. He's all-present. He can't run from him. And so he gets onto a boat, he kind of sighs a sigh of relief, I think I'm getting away from him, he's going in the opposite direction, but he realizes that God himself is also on that boat, and eventually he realizes that God is even with him in the belly of a whale. 
He learned a lesson that a lot of Old Testament figures didn't ever understand, that God is not confined to any specific place. He's everywhere. God, God's at your work. God's at your house. God's uh, in your purse. <laughs> like God is in all those places, though. God is at your crazy aunt's house, like where you're just like, I'm just trying to get through this. Uh, God would want you to do something more. I have to, to, to challenge myself on this all the time. I'm horrible at it. I'm horrible at it. Because I'll just lock in. I just got to get through this. And God's going, well, maybe you could do something. I'm like, hmm. But it's always better when I dig in, when I trust him. God isn't confined to any specific place. He's everywhere. You know what that means? God doesn't wear red, white, and blue. He just doesn't. He likes brown people. There's more of them than us. He likes people in every other language. He likes, uh, you know, realizing the reality that, um, you know, what is... If you're gay, you should stay. That he wants you. Don't run from him. Because he's there too. He's in that place. What would the Iraqi nation look like if it converted to Christianity? That has happened multiple times throughout history. Bigger deals than that. Complete shifts. Because some of us, we think, yeah, but they have kind of that Muhammad guy. <laughs> right? Like, what? I mean, what? The Lord our God is the Lord, the real, the big G God. Last old story, and we'll close up. Uh, Braille, the, um, you know, the raised bumps that blind people would read with. The word Braille came from uh, a kid named Louis Braille. Louis was born in 1809. He lived in France. Uh, his father was a leatherman, and so he would stitch things together, and they work with awls a lot. If you've ever used an awl, you could use it for making a mark in wood. It's a soup. It looks like a little ice pick. Um, you would make holes in the leather for uh, whatever kinds of string to go through to stitch it but somehow when Lewis was walking around at four years old he somehow fell into an awl where it went through his eye and blinded him and for whatever reason he developed an infection where it took his other eye as well and so uh, he got to be a part of a study at the Royal Institution of the Blind Youth in Paris. Who knew they had that in 1809, right? Or 1813, I guess, by this point. But Lewis was in this program and trying to figure, basically realizing that uh, he was going to spend the rest of his life just sitting in a chair. And so he wanted to come up with something else. He was determined to find some kind of answer for something more. And he moved into his father's shop in search of the right tools. 
um, because he had this idea of how could a blind person read by using their fingers. And so he looks through his dad's shop for different tools on what he can, what he can make this out of, these raised dots that he needed to make. This would also become the, the writing that they used uh, in the French military that they called night writing. And so he was able to develop the language easily uh, to copy most of it. But he figured out that the awl was the exact tool that he had to use to make the raised bumps. <laughs> the one that he had to clean blood off of, that that was the perfect one for whatever reason. And he worked and he worked and he created this system of dots where now blind people could read. They could learn to read, write, work math problems, and compose music. Um, do any of you have an all in your life? Like something that stabbed through your eye? But it could be that that is the very thing that God is wanting to do something different with for you. Like where you think... Uh, God, how could you let my wife die early? I thought I was going to go first. I wasn't ready. And that that is the all. And that maybe it could be where the other side of that pain is you start a grief group. Maybe the other side of that pain is that uh, you find somebody else in this room. You know how many people in this room have had spouses pass away? And it's so hard. Maybe you're supposed to do something with that. What, what could be your all? Some of you might have a criminal record that has been, you, you just can't shake it. And so it's messing up trying to get work. It's messing up what kind of housing you can have. It's messing up everything. It just keeps stopping you. What could be the other side of that? What could be the other side of that? David Berkowitz, if you know him, the son of Sam Killer, uh, David Berkowitz went on a, a killing spree in the 70s. He killed six women over the course of about a month. Um, he sent a series of crazy letters to the police, taunting them. Uh, he was eventually uh, caught because of those letters. Uh, he accidentally led the police back to himself, uh, but he was known as the son of Sam, and um, he was demonic just absolutely demonic. And when he was arrested, um, he, he gave the reason for the killings that the next door neighbor's dog told him to do it. And the next door neighbor's dog was named Beelzebub. And just all kinds of demonic crap. Um, and so he's arrested. And he's in the process of waiting to find out if he's gonna be given the death penalty. The laws change in the process of time. They get rid of the death penalty in his state. Uh, and he's just in prison now. He meets, he meets a guy next to his cell and begins talking. And a prison guard walking by recognizes what they're talking about. The next door neighbor is sharing the gospel with David Berkowitz and talking to him about Jesus. And the guard stops by and says, I love Jesus too. And they start having conversations, and the two of these men uh, lead David Berkowitz to Christ, and they, 
They cast demons out of him. They bring truth into him. They, all of a sudden, he looks different. He's acting different. He's saying for the first time in his life, he's, he's not hearing voices in his head, all these different things. How big, how big is our God? I mean, you do, we, don't, we don't understand the depths that he's willing to go to rescue people from hell. The depth that he's willing to go. And so um, we want to be a church that um, we want to, I want to get as close to sin as we can get to reach people. <laughs> because that's what Jesus did all the time. Your all could be a divorce, it could be a death of someone, it could be a career that you lost, it could be failing at school. I would just say let God take that thing and let him use it in your life to reshape you, to comfort other people, that maybe he's wanting to use that not for you. Maybe the goal is not that you'll be comforted, that you'll be happy. Maybe the goal is that you bring healing and wholeness and God himself to other people. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take that. I receive it. But this message was to remind you to know that he is here with you, that he's always present, that he knows everything that you're doing and you're thinking and that you're going through and that you're feeling because he's all-knowing. And not just is he all-knowing, he's all-powerful. He's got the power to change that stuff that you're struggling with, to fix it or transform it, he's all-powerful. Let's go. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. These are just a few. These are just a few of your personality traits. These are just a few of your, your truths that we can stand on because they don't just work most of the time. You are always, always, always these things. You do not let us down. You don't change your mind on who you are, on who we are. Your word is good. You're a good father. You're good at understanding us and knowing us and recognizing where we're coming from because you've been every one of those places before. There's not a place we can ever go that you haven't been. And so thank you for... Thank you for setting it up that way. Thank you for your creativity. We ask you for blessing. We ask you for favor in our lives. We ask you for glory to be set free. We ask you for your fingerprints to be showing on different aspects of our lives, uh, things that we would just recognize you working in that we wouldn't wonder if you're up to something that we would know that we would know that you've been at work. We praise you, we thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Hey, quick, quick thing before you go. Um, we are running Vacation Bible School this coming week. Uh, today, even after this service,
Um, we're going to be moving all of these random pieces into position. Uh, if you would like to volunteer at all, if we, they're looking for extra pairs of hands, it would just be for a short period of time. But also, if you want to serve in Vacation Bible School this upcoming week, uh, you can sign up in the lobby. But otherwise, I, I hope to see you there. It's going to be fun. You guys have a good week. For more information about Vineyard Westside, please visit vineyardwestside.com.